This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. I'm Haley Stoddart, and today we have a very special guest. He is a PhD astrophysicist, science writer, author, professor of physics and astronomy on occasion, and a longtime Star Trek fan. He's written for Forbes, Scientific American, NASA Space Place, and many other print online publications. He has a blog, it's called Starts with a Bang, that has been educating the world since 2008. I am happy, extremely happy, to introduce Dr. Ethan Siegel to Standard Orbit. All right. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here on Standard Orbit. Thanks for having me, Haley and Ken, and I'm looking forward to talking all things Trek with the two of you. We are definitely excited to have you on. Um, So a little background for our listeners. I got to meet Ethan in Vegas last year at the Star Trek convention. He was wandering around and he had this awesome kilt on (laughs) that I stopped (laughs) to ask him about. And it's, uh, he'll have to tell the listeners about it. I'll let him share that. But, and he had a book that we are going to be talking about today and was doing a panel on this book. We're super, super excited. And I was really excited. I went home and I think either later that day, I added it to my wish list. And I think I started following you on Twitter where we kind of interacted and kept in touch. And it's been really fun. And I love, I love getting to read the, articles that you post and retweet because I I love science and I think a lot of Trekkies really enjoy the actual science behind a lot of what we see in Star Trek so you know I I agree completely that was you know I think there are a lot of people that I know who became scientists because Star Trek got them into it and my story is the exact opposite that I was always into science Um, I remember like a microscope was like the best gift I got when I was a kid that I would, I was very excited when like my dad would cut himself shaving and I'd run into there with this like glass slide like no 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 don't wash it off give me the blood give me the blood so I can look at it under the microscope and, and that's the kind of kid I was that I was always just curious about what's down there on the small scales beneath what I can see what's up there on the large scales past what I can see and and what's it all like and how does it work? And that was, that was my jam. And 
that combined with like the ethics of Star Trek was what got me into science fiction and Star Trek. When I was when I was a kid, Star Wars was out. And so, you know, I got into that. But there was only the original series of Star Trek, and that was not really shown all that much where I was. But when Star Trek The Next Generation came out, um, it was probably on for a few years before I really got into it. Um, and then I started to realize, wow, like all of these science fiction things that I didn't really like, they were these dismal, gloomy views of like some sort of dystopian future where, where science and technology has led us astray. And Star Trek was the exact opposite of that. It said, imagine all the advances we're making in science and technology. What if we use that for the benefit of all humanity? And I said, that is just a brilliant vision. And then on top of this, I'm introduced to the world and the leadership of Captain Picard, who for me is just this paragon, this role model of, I mean, basically what every other sci-fi leading person like President Rosalind from Battlestar Galactica or, um, or the, basically anyone from the 100 um, this is what they aspire to. They aspire to being the moral and ethical compass that Captain Picard is amidst this sci-fi setting, exploring the universe. And he is just, he is brave. He is smart. He is there to protect his crew. Um, and he will follow all the rules until those rules become the wrong thing to do and would lead him down the wrong path. And then he'll go the other way. And that combination of science and technology on the one hand and trying to figure out what's the right thing to do, what's the smart thing to do, what's the, what's the correct course of action in this situation, uh, that was what just drew me into the world of Star Trek. And, you know, after The Next Generation, I got to meet, you know, there were the movies, there was going back to the original series, they were Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And after that, there was Enterprise, and now there's Discovery, and I've just been hooked ever since. There's no going back. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Once you head down that path, it's all over. I, I love the enthusiasm. I, I mean, I'm listening to you. I'm getting all pumped up and into this, and it's like we're into a subject that we can all enjoy and play with, and it's, it's, it's incredible. So, you know, Dr. Siegel, the, the, the the key reason we had you on, not just to have that great introduction as to what you got into Star Trek and how you did. And um, I kind of, uh, I, you know, I took that as like, man, you could be the spokesperson for all of us fans, really. Uh, we wanted to really dive into your book, which has just been a phenomenal read. And it, it, I'll be honest, if it wasn't for Haley kind of saying, hey, I, I know this guy and uh, he, he wrote this great book. And then I, yeah, I ordered it right away on Amazon. I, I mean, I just can't get enough of it. So if it's all right with you, Let's kind of start digging into some questions on that. Oh, yeah. I'd love to know what you think of this. I mean, what I remember when I was in high school, I was my last year in high school that uh, Lawrence Krauss's The Physics of Star Trek uh, came out and I got to read it. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. But there were a lot. First off, he only focused on the physics based technologies. And second off, there were a lot of them that he was like, yeah, this will never work. And here's why. And. I don't like to take that tactic very much. I, I'm, Star Trek was an extremely optimistic vision of the future. And so what 
And plus, you know, that book is more than 20 years old. Technology has come a long way and science has come a long way. There were some things that we thought, yeah, this is technically possible, but it's just totally impractical. Many of those things have become real. And many of the things that we thought were impossible are already on their way. And some of the things that we still think are going to have difficulties, right, like going forward into the future, um, well, guess what? It turns out that if you just take the laws of physics as we know them and you make one small change to them, all of a sudden these things like warp drive or subspace communication or artificial gravity, they could become real. And that's what I love. I think that's one of the things that's really great. So I'm going to dive in on one of the sections that I kind of, we're, we're getting there and we're working on it. So uh, with the universal translator. Oh, I so. <laughs> love this one. <laughs> yeah. I love this one because I thought it was crazy. I thought it was crazy when they first showed them. You know, you remember, <laughs> you remember uh, in the movies, they had Captain Kirk and Bones with those enormous, like, <laughs> They, they, they're, they're like, you know, they're like, hello, like, hello, can we, they're just huge devices. And now, here in the 21st century, uh, when they debuted the Google Pixel XL2 phone, they had a Swedish man and an American woman on stage, and they both had earbuds plugged into the phone, and the Swedish man spoke a sentence in Swedish into the phone. Less than two seconds later, the woman in English, she hears in her earbuds that same sentence translated into English in her own ear. She speaks back in English, and less than two seconds later, he hears in Swedish those same sentences. This works for like 80 different languages now, including Klingon, by the way. <laughs> so even if you don't speak Klingon, you know, you just kaplach into the phone and it'll tell you. Yeah, so... Um... So I thought it was a great idea, and I love that we're, we're working on this technology. We have some of this now, but my thinking is, well, okay, so this works for here, for Earth, so our Earther languages, because we, we know them and stuff. So how do we take that and, and make programming that is going to help us in that first encounter with someone who doesn't speak anything like an earther type language you know it's that total dharmak situation almost so how do we how do we go about possibly making this work and make this technology go beyond beyond that because we can take elements it's very um i'll bring up the idea of kalara um, from star trek beyond so she comes on and the universal translator is working and and kind of maybe melding all these different different parts of different languages that we've encountered to translate what she's saying. Because when she first comes on, it's no one's getting it. She's she's speaking and no one's hearing her for several you know seconds, but it probably was longer. So how do we do that? How do we make it so that when we do have that first interaction with someone who not of Earth, to make this universal translator work? What do you think? I mean, that's just such an important question because we have lots of different ways to communicate, right? As humans, we have verbal communication, but we also have a whole slew of nonverbal communication that we use. And that can be used to add 
a lot of nuance to, to different things that, that would maybe be the same if we just use the same words. Um, there's a famous example of this in Next Generation where, um, where Captain Picard is on the bridge and the alien species come on and they're like, oh, like, we've defeated you. There's no way you could ever overcome us. Like, we're much smarter than you. And Captain Picard just like, looks at Riker and Riker looks at Worf and Worf looks at Data and they're all they're all just like giving each other looks and then and then like they all just do the thing and all of a sudden like the aliens are trapped in these force fields and they're like how did you how did you know how to do that and the answer is you know experience just like you talked about just like Star Trek 3 showed us it's it's experience when you get a little bit of experience someone who has a different method of communication, a different mode of communication, it just takes a little bit of time to start to decode that meeting. Even if they don't use a, an alphabetic or, you know, or alphanumeric language, even if they don't uh, communicate verbally, um, if you can get those speech patterns and communicate and, and understand like, what does this mean and how does this mean it, um, that's the sort of thing that machine learning can do. We, we have a whole science called natural language processing, and that doesn't necessarily need to be restricted to spoken language or even a human language. You know, those of us who, who spend time around animals, we know all the nonverbal ways that animals communicate, you know, based on their posture and how they look and the, the types of motions they make. Well, if we can start folding that into what we do what we consider as communication, I think it's really only a matter of time and exposure before an artificial intelligence can learn to parse that and literally build its own Rosetta Stone to decode what, when this action happens, what does it mean? When this thing happens, how do we communicate to someone this is what it means? I think the idea of a universal translator is well on its way. There was even one point in the original series, I believe, where they explained the Universal Translator as it um, it can read the communicator's thoughts and translate that. I don't think you need to go that far. You know, that's well, one of the things that Star Trek does is they offer a lot of explanations for how they think their technology should work. But you do have to remember, at the end of the day, it is just fiction writers writing fiction. That isn't necessarily the way it's going to pan out in real life. And we've seen this where some of the technologies, as we come forward in, in human time, not Star Trek time, uh, you sort of see that the way these technologies work and the way they explain them, they've changed okay. over time. And I, I think that's important that the way Star Trek envisioned it isn't necessarily the way it's going to come to fruition. But when we look at how people are bringing this to fruition, machine learning, natural language processing, um, you know, building up databases of language and, and comparing and understanding that this means this and this means this and um, that that's how you build it. I'm also excited because as this gets better, it's possible that we will begin decoding dead languages that have previously been undecipherable. So this could help not just with things that may happen in the far future, but with things that happened hundreds or thousands of years ago in Earth's history. Now that's fascinating. And I, I think that would be really great. And it's, I, from my perspective, um, I have my degree in psychology, you know, we have body languages and we have those nuances, but they don't always are universal. Most of them are, but there are those ones that in some cultures, 
you can do something and that's offensive. And so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how we can, we can add those in and make those work because you'll have to, I think there will definitely be some that you'll have to say, well, there's these three things that it can mean. And, and based on maybe what other things are going on, it could be this one or it's this one or this, this one. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind that even when we speak the same language, we can have miscommunications. Yeah. Right? We, we're from the same culture. We have the same language. We, we, we're, we're even about the same age. And yet when we talk to each other, we can, I can say something and you can think I mean something other than what I'm intending. And, and it can go back and forth that way. Um, miscommunications are inevitable. But that doesn't mean it needs to be a Darmok and Jalad situation. It doesn't mean it needs to be Shaka when the walls fell and an inability to communicate. Just like when you're, when you're speaking to someone and you're having difficulty communicating, a big part of successful communication is trying again in a different way, is trying to get your point across, pausing to listen, and asking clarifying questions. That's something that, that you know, I think is necessary in all types of communication between intelligent species and is also something that we see come up over and over again in Star Trek in the different incarnations where people's behavior or aliens behavior surprises people. But once you learn, oh, this is their culture, this is what it means, you know, um, it was a big deal when Riker got punched in the face by a Klingon on the Klingon ship and they say looks like you need to learn when to duck and he's like no I knew exactly when not to duck that, yeah. that that's an important part of communication is knowing when to let the Klingon punch you in the face that's what I always say and I, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also just in, in just kind of this is a great conversation context is king and you have to understand where people are coming from. And that's why two people, same age, looking right at each other, can get so screwed up when trying to understand what other, what each other's trying to cut across. And that's why I say context. I have to understand where people are coming from. Exactly. See, and I thought you were gonna tell me context is for kings, but that's oh. the name of a discovery episode. <laughs> All right, we're going to switch channels. We're going to go in another direction. We're going to do some technology technology, something Ooh. that really blew my mind in reading your book. And, you know, I was prepared to have mind blown, but it was all around the impulse engines. And let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. I, I was reading about the warp drive. Everything you wrote made sense. Okay, I get this. Um, this is going to be something that's going to be very tricky to try and conquer. If it can happen, there's so many things that have to do with the theory of relativity that keep it from moving forward, on and on and on. But when I got to the impulse engines, I'm like, oh, here we go. Now we're going to read something that is very feasible or very plausible, at least in my mind. And that's not the case at all. And would you be willing to kind of outline the kind of energy and it would take to, to, to even travel at impulse power and the impact to the human body if impulse speed was initiated? I mean, that's, that's a big thing that I think you really have to be careful about is when you're envisioning your technology, the laws of physics don't just go away. They're there and there's something to be reckoned with. So 
you have to invent all these other technologies, and I'll say invented technologies, just to make the one you want feasible, right? If you're saying, hey, we want to go at interplanetary speed, well, human bodies can only withstand a certain amount of accelerating force at once. We call these G-forces, right? And, and you can maybe handle 1G, 2Gs, 3Gs, 4, maybe up to 12 in the right direction. But if you're talking about sustained accelerations of like, oh, in a few minutes, I'm going to go from rest to a significant fraction of the speed of light. Wow. Do you know how many G's it takes you to accelerate from rest to the speed of light in a few seconds or even a few minutes? You're talking just thousands and thousands of G's. And if you accelerate your body at thousands of G's, terrible things are going to happen. For one, your heart isn't going to be strong enough to pump your blood through your veins. And once blood stops getting to your brain, you run into a lot of trouble. Um, for So like losing consciousness, passing out, experiencing trauma, having the organs ripped out of the blood vessels from inside of your body, which by the way is how most parachutists when their chutes don't open die when they hit the ground. Um, this is not something you want. And even if it were, so you, so you go and invent something and say, okay, well, we're going to have inertia dampeners and we're going to have artificial gravity and we're going to overcome that problem. And artificial gravity is its whole other chapter. But, but say, okay, we're going to do that. Let's just focus on the engine. Well, if you have a certain amount of mass and you say, I want to make this mass move close to the speed of light, how much energy does it take? Well, Einstein tells you that you can get energy from mass via E equals mc squared. And if you say, I want this large mass to move close to the speed of light, how much energy do you need? Well, you need approximately as much mass, again, as the thing you're trying to accelerate. So if you have a you know, million ton spaceship that you want to accelerate close to the speed of light, you need about a million tons of mass to convert from matter into energy. That's just for impulse engines. That's a lot of mass. And that's because you have to conserve energy and momentum in everything you do. So you can take this mass, like matter and antimatter, annihilate them, and shoot them out the back and build yourself a, build yourself a nice little rocket. Um, but that's a lot of energy. And so when they start talking on Star Trek about like, oh, you got to get your fusion reactors going, I'm like, you don't want to be using fusion reactors because fusion is less than 1% as efficient as converting mass into energy via e equals mc squared. You can't have 100 times, 1,000 times the mass of your spaceship on board your spaceship just to go to full impulse. That, that's not going to fly. So what you have to do is you have to say, well, we need matter-antimatter annihilation technologies, and we need to be willing to actually consider the physical constraints of not just a spaceship, but of the human bodies aboard that spaceship. I get, I get a little bit uh, skeptical when people start promising things, even on a more mundane level, like Elon Musk's proposed Hyperloop. You want to take someone from... New York from San Francisco to Los Angeles in 30 minutes on a on a loop. Well, you better hope that you don't have things like terrain to worry about because if you have to like curve to the left, curve to the right, 
the amount of G-forces you'll experience going that fast that you can go from San Fran to LA in half an hour, at the very least, you're going to lose your lunch. Might different story when you've got freight when you're shipping things, but but if you're talking about putting living beings on that, boy, I might take a page out of Captain Archer's book as reluctant as he was to even put his dog through a transporter. I'd be more than that reluctant to ride the impulse engines. That was a wild ride all in of itself. <laughs> I really uh, took a lot away from that. And that's why reading that just, just amazed me because I thought, okay, vacuum of space, there are no G-forces. This was just what was in my head thinking, you know, arbitrarily. And then um, putting it all together was just, man, this is way, way, way out there. And um, you know what I'm going to ask in a little while is a lot more realistic as far as what's around the corner. But no, that was that was a, a great synopsis. Thank you. Oh yeah, you're you're very welcome, and I, I'm happy to take questions even if they're about <laughs> things that are are maybe not covered in the book. By the way, I I have very few people who've come to me with a technology that isn't covered in the book. Yeah. So, if you can think of one, I'm I'm happy to do my best to to put it out there okay that'll be my assignment while Haley asks her next question <laughs> yeah yeah so um my next one i the deflector shields technology so i was curious with that you talk about having like a plasma around and then having this magnetic basically kind of like our our, our magnetosphere that's around our earth yeah so that plasma is that kind of going to enact kind of how our atmosphere does and that's why we have to have both of them we can't just have like an electric magnetic field around the ship that was so, my question about that so here's the whole thing is on on earth our atmosphere is mostly neutral so because it's so thick it does a really good job of shielding us from like cosmic ray particles like if you have the aurora borealis that's because of our atmosphere. Yes, you have our planet's magnetic field and that will funnel particles in these big rings around the poles. But it's because we have the atmosphere that we get these colors and we get that ionization because these high energy particles come in, they hit the atmosphere and they might penetrate down for like a hundred kilometers, but they're still a hundred kilometers up when they come to an end. So, you know, they, they come down and you can see if you look from above that they look like these little wispy things because as they collide with the atmosphere, they lose energy. And the particles themselves aren't energetic enough to make it to the ground. The atmosphere keeps us safe. But as they get ionized, they produce these colors as the electrons get excited or ionized and then fall back down through the energy levels. That's where we get the colors from. So now you're saying, well, I understand how the solar wind particles are deflected because you have a magnetic field and you have this, this, these particles for it to collide with. But now I wanna say, what if someone's firing a directed energy weapon at me and I'm on a ship and I don't have the luxury of like hundreds of kilometers of atmosphere to protect me. All I have is whatever my deflector shield is made out of. Well. There's a great way to do it. Like you said, and, and presumably you got this from the book, uh, there's a magnetically confined plasma. So plasma is just like normal matter like you and me, except ionized. The electrons are kicked off of their nuclei. 
So you have this ionized plasma, you confine it magnetically. And what this is, is first off, this is opaque to light. So the downside of a real life deflector shield is unlike in Star Trek, you won't be able to see out. They can't see in and you can't see out. But the good news is anything that comes in collides with this plasma. If light comes in, it will scatter off. So it'll just like get absorbed and get re-radiated in a certain direction away. So you're safe from phaser fire. The other nice thing is it's kind of like um, when you're inside that shield, any matter that come in comes in, it's going to get it's going to have to interact with that plasma as well. So any particles that come in, they get bounced around. And if you send a large object in, it'll likely get fried because the plasma is very hot. So, so it's a great shield weapon. And the lovely thing about it is it's already been developed where it's prototyped and this can this has been demonstrated is we can create these plasmas we can magnetically confine them into like a spherical or elliptical shape where it's like a nice little shell and it can protect you from things like the equivalent of phaser fire or or projectile particles. So don't worry about your photon torpedoes. Don't worry about your phasers. Don't worry about, you know, don't even worry about getting rammed. If a, a ship is dumb enough to ram a deflector shield, it's signing its own, you know, it's, it's, it's throwing its own funeral for itself. Um, and I think this is great because this is a technology that's maybe the ultimate in defensive technology, not just against potentially hostile aliens, but if you're traveling through interstellar space, being bombarded by particles is one of the greatest dangers that you can have. When we bring down things like satellites back to Earth, we look under a microscope and we can see there are all these microscopic little holes in them from what we call micrometeoroids. And these are tiny little particles, grains of dust or even smaller, that will poke through because they move so fast, whatever's out there in space. You've got to protect your ship from that. And the best way to do that is with a shield that will deflect all these external particles away. And that is something that deflector shield technology, which is really like right on the horizon, is going to give us. That's great. So how would you propose that if we want to have that on, let's say, through a large period of time, but we need to keep moving, our ship needs to keep moving, how would we have the tech to see out of it? How like, how can you know that you're not going to run into something major or you're on the direction that you need to be going? Like, That's a really interesting question. So the way, let's see, because on the one hand, <laughs> you do want to be able to see and mm -hmm. electromagnetic waves are exactly what's being blocked by these plasmas. I would say one of the best things you can look for is very, very long wavelength waves of light. Just because something is invisible in a certain wavelength of light doesn't mean it's invisible at all wavelengths. For example, if we take a look at the galactic center, um, you know, you see the Milky Way in the night sky if you're lucky enough to live by a dark sky area, those of you who live in 
Vegas or are visiting Indiana, maybe a little SOL. Um, but those of you who live in a rural area, like this is real. You see the Milky Way at night and in the summer where you can see sort of where the center of the Milky Way is, you see these big black dust lanes. They're blocking the light because the dust that exists in the center of the galaxy is opaque to visible light. But if you had infrared eyes, you could see right through it. Well, these plasmas are sensitive to light of a particular wavelength. If you have very long wavelength light, it's, very, it's much less likely to interact with this plasma. So if you make a thin deflector shield and you send out very long wavelength light, that could potentially be a way to see through the ionized plasma. Otherwise, you gotta turn the shield off at least for a little bit to let some light in. And that, that poses hazards. Okay. No, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. All right, always, looking, always looking to connive, like, how do we get around this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I do have a real question, but you, you put up the challenge to find something that wasn't in the book. So, yeah, well, one would be very unfair just because of timing. You're not going to have the spore drive in there. but I'm, I'm not going to have the spore drive. The book was written before Discovery yeah. premiered. I knew Discovery was coming. I didn't right. know what was coming. Okay, I may have talked to some people who gave me spoilers, but I couldn't write about that. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's not, that's, that's not a fair um, challenge. The only thing I could think of, and it's relatively small, but is there anything that uh, would discern a photon torpedo from a quantum torpedo? Oh, see, this is good. This is a good question because they don't tell us what quantum torpedoes are made of. We just know that they're better than photon torpedoes. That's all we know. That's right. That's right. Better than photon torpedoes. So I can tell you that the way photon torpedoes work is built off of that E equals MC squared that we talked about. What they say, and you know these are like roughly coffin-shaped and sized objects because that's how you bury Spock at the end of the saddest of all the Star Trek movies is you, you put him in a photon torpedo casing. Well, right. the way they work a photon torpedo is they have this big casing and in half the casing you have matter. And in the other half you have antimatter and it's all nice and confined and separated and photon torpedo launches and when you want it to detonate you just turn off the confinement and you turn off the separation and you allow the matter and antimatter to annihilate and what's great about matter antimatter annihilation is it is the most efficient conversion of mass into energy of anything in the universe. It's 100% efficient. If you have a particle of matter and a particle of antimatter and you collide them with one another, like an electron positron or a proton antiproton or hydrogen antihydrogen, and you collide them, 100% of the mass of the matter and 100% of the mass of the antimatter gets converted into energy. If I wanted to reproduce the most powerful nuclear explosion on Earth using matter and antimatter, I could take like a Honeycrisp apple and a Honeycrisp anti-apple and collide them. And that would be the equivalent of the Tsar Bama, of the most powerful nuclear explosion ever on Earth. So if you want to blow up a spaceship, um, a photon torpedo, this is not, we're not talking apples anymore. We're talking like, you know, roughly a ton's worth of matter and antimatter. 
this is enormous. This is this is not like, you know, oh, we got a few grams, we got maybe one kilogram. You're talking tons. This could easily blow up a ship. In fact, if I had an asteroid's worth of antimatter and I put it at the center of the Earth, it would blow up the Earth. It would literally cause Earth to gravitationally unbind itself. That's how powerful matter-antimatter annihilation is. So in a photon torpedo, that's the principle it works on. If you want something more powerful than that, a quantum torpedo, I'm going to have to make something up, right? Because what's better than 100%? And I'm going to say, if I wanted to figure out how that would work, what I would do is I would create some sort of miniature controlled wormhole where I can say, okay, I've got my little quantum torpedo, and what I'm doing is I'm just making a little doorway here. And when the quantum torpedo gets to the destination I want it at, that's when I pump all the antimatter I want through that wormhole so it instantly emerges here, and then it will annihilate with whatever I come into contact with. So that would be my preferred science fiction way to fight a Borg cube. I like it. So it was interesting when you just gave that last example because what came into my mind were two things. Can it defeat a tritanium hull, whatever that is? And in today's technology, torpedoes do not work by impacting a ship. They they function by blowing the water out from underneath it and the weight of the ship caves in on itself and it breaks like a V. Oh, kind so you're, of was you're talking me. about marine torpedoes, not spaceship. I am. I'm saying, today's, I'm saying today's technology, right? So when you were right, talking right. about your, your quantum torpedo going in another direction using wormholes and it's just kind of like it's taking the space away and putting it here and boom, you know, it's gone. Actually, today, most people think torpedoes function by hitting the side of a ship and blowing a hole in it, and that's not what they do. And it's, uh, it's just an interesting parallel, that's all. I think that's pretty interesting. If you can somehow come up with a little space-time bomb, I think that would be you know, something where the, the space around you imploded or something. That could, be, that could be a devastating weapon. Now that we've detected gravitational waves, I'd be really curious if there isn't some Star Trek technology that comes out in some later series or later seasons of Star Trek that don't exploit that, that don't say, oh, you know, we can use these ripples in space-time and we can, we can cause things to basically be destroyed in space by manipulating the gravitational structure of space-time itself. So it's kind of almost like that oh, okay. red matter from um, 2009. You know, they have that tiny, tiny little red dot, and it implodes because... Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Is that right. in the book? No. Very good, very good. I did, I did put the gravitational slipstream into there, but... but you're right. I couldn't get them all. I couldn't get them all. <laughs> also, the first one I got that someone had stumped me with is uh, they said, you know, back on Earth, they've uh, ameliorated food insecurity by controlling the weather. Why don't you have weather control in the book? And that's one that actually wound up on the cutting room floor. So uh, that would have been a very good civilian technology. 
Definitely, for sure. Did you want to uh, talk about your other one, Ken, that you were you were curious about? Yep. The last one I had to, to kind of explore, because this was the opposite of impulse engines and where we are, was the cloaking device. And I've always had a real problem with the utilization in Star Trek, because I always felt that uh, the fact that the Federation never used it was ridiculous, uh, in the sense that you're allowing your enemies to have a, a superior weapon. But that's, that's commentary, that's not so much technology. But the technology that's coming along today is very close to being perfected in many ways. And it would seem that we're a lot further along here in 2018. Um, and, and when we get to the 23rd century, this would be a technology that could be easily, well, I wouldn't say easily, but definitely going along the lines of being perfected. Oh yeah, you know, cloaking technology appears in all sorts of sci-fi series. I think the cloaking technology we have today is actually closest to a very different sci-fi universe um, to Predator than it is to Star Trek. Because the way it works is we have these devices, they're called metamaterials, and what they can do is they can take light that comes from behind you. And as it hits the metamaterial instead of you, it gets bent around the material and then continues on in the same direction that it was emitted from. So what they've started to do, right, initially that first metamaterial that worked like that where you could bend light around you and have it continue on, what that means is someone looking at you is going to see the background light from behind you coming straight forward. They won't see you because they'll see what's behind you instead. That's how a cloaking device works in, in real life, is it's not that you disappear, it's that you bend the light from behind you around you in all directions and it just continues on. So it's like to someone looking at you, you weren't there. In practice, these work for narrow ranges of light, not broad spectrum coverage. And they also work only if you're a certain distance away. If you get up close, you can sort of see the distortions. But this is still really good and really promising. The way they've worked to overcome that first obstacle is they've said what we're gonna do with these metamaterials is we're gonna build up multiple layers of metamaterials that are better at getting some wavelengths rather than others. What was initially just a narrow, I believe it was a microwave uh, cloaking device, they can now go from far into the radio through the microwave into the infrared from far to mid to near infrared. They haven't cracked the full visible light spectrum yet. But when they do, and that's just a matter of time and technology, when they get there, we will have a true cloaking device. And that is incredibly exciting. So that's something that I fully expect is on the horizon that, that we're gonna see widespread in the next 10 to 20 years. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I took an astronomy class. So you're talking about all the different wavelengths and, and stuff that we can see. So I'm only remembering very little of it. So that's okay. I took an <laughs> astronomy class once too. <laughs> it was just for kicks and giggles because I like it. So um, what I want to ask, what is, what was your favorite thing to, to research and talk about in your book? 
You know, being an astrophysicist, I I was like, I was pretty sure it was going to be all the stuff that I was like tangentially that I knew about, that I had talked about, that I had thought about for decades in some cases. But it turned out when I was doing my research that it was actually the stuff that I knew the least about that I found the most fascinating. People asked me what my what my favorite technologies were to do for this book. And the two I usually pick um, are uh, the phasers and synthahol. Very, very different technologies. Uh, the <laughs> phasers I love because I think this could be the most good for society. If we could revolutionize law enforcement by allowing law enforcement people to disable but not harm targets mm from a distance with no risk of lethal force, how tremendous would that be? Well, Incredible. the military, I learned, made a prototype device of a real-life phaser. Now, before you're like, where's my phaser? The answer is it's tank-mounted, and it's a military prototype, so you're unlikely to see it anytime soon. But what it does is it sends out a two-phase electromagnetic pulse. That first phase is ultraviolet light, Ultraviolet is energetic enough that it can knock the electrons off of the atoms that are there, making a little bit of what we call an ionized plasma. Now, this plasma is hot, but it's sparse enough and it's low energy enough that it won't burn you. It would feel hot if you touched it, but that's it. And so it'll just interact with the first thing it hits, like, say, your shirt. But the second pulse is what gets you. It is a laser pulse of infrared radiation. So it's longer wavelength than visible light. But when infrared light collides with free electrons and it's a high intensity light, it causes them to absorb all of that energy. So they heat up and they expand very rapidly. And that creates a concussive blast known as a, an explosion. This will knock a target off its feet. If it's the right amount of power, it can knock a target out. But if it's below a certain threshold of power, it doesn't pose any lethal risk. So you've got the option to stun a target using non-lethal force and disabling them. This works up to two kilometers away, more than a mile away. Wow. You could use this. And that, I think, is just one of the most useful technologies that could literally revolutionize how we serve and protect and keep the peace in this world. Definitely, and for sure. I love that one. But the other one that I thought was just fascinating was Synthahol. I thought that this was just one of those like plot devices that they cooked up to say, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, even on a spaceship, like, the ennui and the malaise and like all the existential crises, they catch up with you. After a long day, people are still going to need a drink. They're still going to need an outlet. So let's let them get all the good effects of alcohol. Let's let them get the euphoria and the increased self-confidence and the willingness to put themselves in situations they normally wouldn't. But let's throw away all the negative things. Let's throw away the... Um, loss of good judgment and let's throw away the dehydration and the nausea and the dead brain cells and the addictiveness and the liver failure and and the hangovers and all of that let's throw the negative effects away let's keep the good effects 
and also let's make sure that there's a nice antidote so that when the red alert siren goes off, you know, you're, oh, like, I need to be sober now. Good. Now I'm sober. Let's go, let's go, you know, fight the Romulans or whatever is going on today. Um, well, yeah, when Roddenberry invented it, it was a pipe dream because it was just a plot device. And he said, the thing that will make you sober again is your own adrenaline. Well, pharmacology doesn't work that way. But the way it does work is when you drink alcohol, but the alcohol and its breakdown products will bind to certain receptors in your body in the nervous system. And um, specifically what they will bind to is, um, you know, this molecule GABA. So you have what's called full GABA agonists, which that basically means anything that this is going to bind to, um, the alcohol comes in, it binds to it, and it gets activated. And that's why you have all of those effects that alcohol gives you. But what if you have these different subunit receptors? What if you could have some sort of drug that bound to the ones you want and not to the ones you don't. In other words, what if instead of a full GABA agonist, you had a partial GABA agonist? Well, guess what? There's a whole class of drugs that does exactly this. They're in the Valium family. So Valium, Xanax, Clonopin, these are partial GABA agonists. It is literally just a matter of finding the right pharmacological combination to bind to the receptors you want and not the receptors you don't, and that gets you part way there. The other part is then saying, oh, I need to be sober now. What do I do? Well, they have a pill that's an antidote to this because what it does is it comes in, it outcompetes these molecules that have activated these receptors, and it blocks the receptor site. So they have these antidote pills. They take about 10 to 30 minutes to take effect. So it's not immediate, but it's solid. And what they do is any bound molecules that are there, it'll knock them out and you'll go back to being sober. Now in real life, that's like all of what I told you is true, but also you can't get everything for everyone because there are side effects. And you know, side effects is what we call any effect that a drug has that's just unwanted. So yes, we do have this antidote, but it also has side effects that include things like seizures and convulsions. So those are probably bad. We probably don't want that um, involved there. But this is a problem that has a known solution. We just have to find the right cocktail. We have to construct and put the right molecules into your body. And if we do that, synthahol will be real and a synthahol antidote would be real. And I think this could be a huge benefit for public health if everyone who suffers from alcohol addiction, alcoholism, cirrhosis, all the other negative effects that alcohol brings you, imagine if you could just wipe them out. Imagine if the millions of alcoholics in this country could suddenly indulge when they wanted to and actually be okay. I think that's, it'd be great. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm, yeah, the GABA receptors, and I'm curious to know how much, so now I want to know more about, is there still going to be that inhibitor effect on the prefrontal cortex, which is what 
why we make bad choices when we drink a lot and we do stupid things and stuff because we're inhibited in our prefrontal cortex, which is our decision maker. That's where everything goes and we take everything and we help make our decisions is right there. That's why teenagers, they do stupid things when we're all young and teens because our prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet. So that's really, really interesting. And I, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm really curious when we do make this, if we're going to have different strains of synthahol, like, oh, this one will just give you the increased self-confidence. So this one will give you the increased self-confidence and the loss of inhibition. Oh, this one will mess up your judgment too. So you can make bad decisions and blame it on the synthahol. <laughs> and then you can, you can get your different bottles of like, you know, don't blame me. It was synthahol C. Like I, I, uh... <laughs> It is green. <laughs> the green one's the bad that's one. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And let me tell you, if I can get Whoopi Goldberg to serve me one of those, oh man, just to be in her presence, I'd go to the, I'd go to ten forward every time. <laughs> yes, I agree. Ken, do you have anything you want to add? No, I, I, I just, well, for me, just, it's, it's been such a wild ride. No, I, I, I've enjoyed this. It, it just, there's so many things that just make you think, right? And if you're talking about things like synthahol, every family's had, every family's had to deal with alcoholism, things along those lines. And I always wonder if everything that's created to, I guess, solve the problem, does it create another one? And so are the responses chemical or is it, um, I guess, physiological? Once you get to the point where you can just choose the, 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 the one area that you want to enhance, whether it's confidence, whatever it is, does that now become something that uh, you can't shut off, don't want to shut off, and want to keep that going? And is there danger in that? So it's just like, I mean, it's like a, a, a build upon to build upon to build when I was listening to that. You know, Ken, I think that's a really good question. And that's, that's one of the things that I was really pleased that they not only allowed me to, but they encouraged me to explore in the book was they said, you know, you can absolutely do the Star Trek thing and explore what are the ethical implications mm -hmm. of this. Um, and I think Synthahol is one of those technologies that does have these ethical questions that come up with it. Are we are we enabling uh, a potential dependency on drugs by having and promoting synthahol? Um, are we, are we, a lot of people when they take, for example, anti-anxiety or anti-psychotic or antidepressant meds, they report that they don't feel like themselves anymore. Like I'm more functional this way, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but I also don't feel like myself. And that's, that's a big deal. You know, we, we used to lobotomize people to help them deal with things. And we've decided that's an incredibly unethical thing because you're literally taking someone's thought capacity power away from them. So I think these are questions that we're going to have to ask. And it's going, the answer I think is going to depend on what what type of synthahol we actually wind up producing and what its effects are. I think, I think these are questions that it's vital to ask though. Definitely. Definitely. Well, that's where my head was going because uh, <laughs> I haven't, it'll be 30 years since I've had any alcohol uh, coming up. 
And uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you, 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 you steer away from things that you feel could impact you in a negative way or, or drive you in a different direction. And it's certainly not a judgmental thing. It's just my own personal thing. But it's always been when you're out there, if, if you could have that, that, that fun with your friends and all that other stuff, but not have to worry about it, the implications. How do we get there? How do we make it work? And then how do we not make it worse? It's, uh, it's a delicate dance. It really is. Oh, yeah. And and I think one of the great lessons of Star Trek is that you're going to be around people who look different, sound different, value different things, make different decisions, have different concerns than you, but you're all part of the same universe. And and that's and that's something you all have to like. You all have to find a way to coexist, live with each other, respect each other and and respect other people's decisions that are going to be different than yours. And I think that, I think that when, you know, someone says like what you just said about Cynthia Hall, that needs to be considered as just an equally valid perspective as someone who's like, woo, let me make it. <laughs> like they're all valid perspectives and yours needs to be valued just as highly as anyone else's. I appreciate that. But what you just said is to me what the essence of Star Trek is. It's, it's about infinite diversity and infinite combinations, uh, loving and respecting one another and no judging. And I think that's, that's exactly why we're all into this. The technology, the, the ride, it's that utopian future that pulls us all together and that wanting of just being accepted for who we are. So you won't come after me because I'm light on the wrong side and dark on the wrong side. <laughs> no, I will come to talk to you because that would be very fascinating to know where you're from and why. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So, you know, do you always drive in a certain direction that caused this problem? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Haley, what did you have? You know, I think it's it's been really fun. This is, you know, like I said, I, I love the science aspects of everything. And I think most most Trekkies, we, we love the actual science. I was super excited last year in Vegas when they had actual science panels, um, which is the first time that they've done it. This year will be my fifth year going and they've never had actual panels about actual science. And, wow. and so I thought that was great. And I'm really hoping that they bring some of that back again this year, because I think so many of us, we do enjoy the actual science, not just the actual science behind the show, but we like the science that's been inspired by the show and, you know, and, and the science just in general, I think it's great. So this has been well, really fun. I, I have to say, I, they know I'm coming. They're welcome to invite me. I'm willing to do it regardless. But if they don't, we just might have to make our own unofficial panels and run that. And I bet you we get a little bit of a crowd if we do. Well, my fingers are definitely crossed that, that they'll invite you to do another panel or, or, yeah, we will. We will make our own, right, Ken? We will, in the <laughs> lounge, and it'll be fun. And I can try Cynthia Hall, and we'll see where this thing goes. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it could be an experience, that's for sure. <laughs> all right well, well thank you so thanks much. for having me on the show my name's ethan siegel my book is trechnology the science of star trek from tricorders to warp drive 
It's available wherever books are sold. And for those of you who be in Star Trek Las Vegas uh, this July and August, I'll see you there. So and I get you, mine signed. That's yeah. right. No, we'll that's right. <laughs> so, Dr. Siegel, do you have a, um, a website or uh, is there, you know, in, from, uh, from following you on the interwebs, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Starts With a Bang. My blog, Starts With a Bang, is on Forbes, uh, forbes.com slash sites slash Starts With a Bang. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook, Google Plus, and Tumblr uh, as, as either myself, Ethan Siegel, or Starts With a Bang. So look for me. I'm around, and I promise I put out more content than anyone except the most diehard science fans will be able to follow. Oh, man, that'll be fun to do. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of this information. And the, this was a lot of fun. I, uh, I had a blast. And we appreciate you um, kind of staying in contact with Haley, uh, because if it wasn't for you two being together, we wouldn't even get you on the show. And now I feel like um, having read the book and having uh, met you that, uh, you know, it's, you have these experiences in life where you just, you just smile and you're happy and it just, it just makes everything lift. And uh, this was, this was a great interview and you're a great guest. And I really, really appreciate your time and joining us here on Standard Orbit. Well, it's been my pleasure and thank you. And, and I, I always tell people when I first meet them that I'm always happy to meet a fan and make a new friend. And in Haley's case, it's absolutely been my pleasure too. Oh, thank you. It's it's definitely been mine. I'm I'm so glad that kilt caught my attention. You didn't talk about your kilt. Nope, nope. But those of you who come to Star Trek Las Vegas will get to see that I have two now. <gasps> I have a space themed one and I have a Star Trek themed one. So Oh I'm 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 excited. Oh now I'm I now I'm even more excited. That's gonna be awesome. <laughs> well thank you for coming again. Um, discussing technology isn't the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM. Here are some topics playing on our other shows across the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Also, and this might be me reading way too much into this, but I feel like because Tilly ends up being so instrumental in what happens later in the Mirror Universe, part of me when I was reading this wondered if in the back of my mind... Stamets is like, I need to have one person. And Lork is like, oh, I want to make my own. Oh, Tilly, that's who you want. Yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> to the journey. This is Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if. Oh, Lord. <laughs> if you fall in love with a hologram. <laughs> you might be in a doomed relationship. <laughs> if you fall in love and it never really happened. You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love with someone manipulative... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you can't even remember your own name... You're definitely in a doomed relationship. <laughs> the Orb. So I'm going to destroy your computers, so if you want to fight, you're going to have to use real bombs. I hope you're ready, because I'm leaving. You figure it out. But of course, trailing the Enterprise is always the Starfleet cleanup ship that comes in and yeah, cleans the up the mess. Yeah, the USS Broom Sweep. Right, yeah. the USS Broom Sweep. Standard orbit. Can we not just go to just a planet and everybody has dark complexion and it's just it's not a thing? You know, it's not like a crux of the story 
right? That would have been, I think that would have been true progress. And it's not even like, oh, well, since we're going to this planet, we have to talk about race. That's the whole point of the whole story. Uh, it serves the story well, but I don't think that's a prerequisite to have a story like this. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. We haven't had one yet, so we'd love to hear from you. You can also look contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm, You'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau. Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. You guys, uh, your, your contributions, your help, your support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So f- to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on, Babel, on the Babel Conference. I'm there all the time. Or you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about all things Smallville, the young Superman show that ran from 2001 to 2011. And also, you can find me on the Babel Conference uh, complaining about things that uh, I don't like and praising things that I do like, because that's what we do as fans. So I look forward to talking to you all on there. What about you, Haley? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I am Trekkie01D. I know some people like to call it Trekkie. 10D, but that would be incorrect. I am not on that one. You can also find me on the Babel Conference. I am enjoying uh, chatting with all of the listeners as I am new to this, but it's been fun. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Review.